Hi there, I'm Renee Hatlett of NBC Sports. Most days you can find me trackside at a motorsports event, but today you'll find me where I'm most comfortable, inside the truck with Steve and Paul. This is Inside the Truck, presented by Summer Skates. Show your game off the ice. Inside the Truck, pulling back the curtain on sports television production. Here is Steve Lansky and Paul Hemming. I'm Steve Lansky. I'm in my 42nd year of working in sports media. As a producer, I've produced Hockey Night in Canada and the Grey Cup on CBC. I've produced Sportsnet's Hockey Studio and produced at the Olympic Winter Games. On Twitter, I'm at Big Mouth Sports. And I'm Paul Hemming. I've been a live sports TV director for over 20 years. I have directed the NHL, CFL, and World Juniors for TSN, the NHL, and Hockey Night in Canada for Sportsnet. Currently, I'm the director for the Carolina Hurricanes on Bally Sports and can be found on Twitter at From Ice Level. Episode 29, Mr. Hemming. Who's your best number 29 on the jersey of all time? We'll work our way up, Steve, from our least kind of favorite sports to, to hockey. So uh, let's start with the NBA. For me, there was only one 29, Paul Silas. Oh, my God. Of all the 29s, why would you pick the same 29 as me? Well, he's a hell of a ball player. Oh. And, and his first name was Paul. So he's two for two. I didn't think of that. Celtics, Mm -hmm. championships, Sonics, 1979 championship. If you needed one rebound hauled down, Rodman or Paul Silas, those would be my two choices. Yep. Okay. Football, Steve. Now NFL football. Okay. This guy could really carry the mail. And it pains me to say that there was, you know, I mean, I'm a Barry Sanders fan, so I'm partial to the running backs, but I, I have to give my vote. The best 29 in the NFL history, Eric Dickerson. Oh, my God. You and I are two for two. Two for two. Uh, that's right. exactly who I had. 2,000 yards in a season. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And such a unique style. He was he was almost bolt upright. Yeah. He was an upright runner, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the goggles. First guy yep. I ever remember wearing goggles under his helmet, right? Yep. Yep, exactly. Oh, he yep. could move. Dickerson could move. I don't know about his motivation, but mm-hmm. man, if if you needed some yards, him or Earl Campbell, to me, would be the two guys that just, yep. you're not stopping them, really. Absolutely. Okay, baseball now, Steve. Uh, honorable mention as uh, to my Kansas City Royals, number 29, Dan Quisenberry, the quiz. Oh, quiz. Right? I mean, everything comes down to Kansas City Royals or Detroit Lions for me. But anyway, uh, honorable mention to the quiz. Number 29, MLB, best player ever, has to be. Rod Carew. <laughs> I knew you were going to pick him because you guys have the same birthday, don't you? Ah, how did you know that? <laughs> I didn't know that. You've Creeper. told me that before. No, ah. no, you've said that before on the podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah I, yeah. I knew you were going to pick him. And I've mm-hmm. seen you hit in person. Mm-hmm. If I needed one hit, I'd probably look to Carew on the bench before I'd look to Hemming. Is that, <laughs> is that okay if I say well, that? Yeah, maybe from a contact standpoint, but man, our swings sure were the same. <laughs> we, we both had sweet swings. No, no, they were not the same. <laughs> not buying it? Yeah. All right. All right, let's move to hockey. Buying it? I'm not even looking through the window at it. I'm changing not buying gears, it. No. Changing gears now. We're going to go to hockey. A couple of 29s currently playing that aren't bad. Uh, Nathan McKinnon from oh, yeah, the Colorado Avalanche. At, yeah. And Marc-Andre Fleury. 
who's, uh, you know, digging in against the Montreal Canadiens, right, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. But I would say the best number 29 ever in the NHL has to be from Le Canadien. Oh, my God. Ken Dryden. We're going four for four. Four for four. We are four oh. for four. There's no way. There's no way. That's who I had on my list was Ken Dryden. And we do not, I swear on a stack of Bibles, we do not talk about these guys in advance. So No, we do not. Mark this date down in your calendar because I can pretty much guarantee this will be the only time this happens. What about mailbag? You got anything? Yeah, we do, actually. Uh, this one comes in response to our episode, Project Kansas, uh, which for those of you who have not listened, is Project Kansas was the code name that Coke Coca-Cola used uh, when they were coming up with New Coke, which uh, for those of you who don't know, Steve was the only person, I think, in North America who really liked it. It <laughs> failed miserably. And we used Project Kansas as an analogy to regional Stanley Cup playoff coverage. So you can fill in the blanks there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> at Inside the Truck, kudos on the Project Kansas reference. Retired from Coke after 30 years, heard CEO and president talk about New Coke. They got self-addressed stamped envelope with a blank piece of paper inside asking them to sign and return. Guy wanted signatures of the two dumbest SOBs that ever lived. And that came from Wired and Retired via Twitter. So thank you for that feedback. Uh, that certainly brightened our day. So let me get this straight. Some guy sat at home, did two envelopes, sent it in to the two high-level guys at Coke and said, I need your autographs because you are the two dumbest buggers in my life. Is that classic or what? Oh, my <laughs> God. Can you imagine getting that envelope? Yeah, exactly. Oh That's classic, God. Steve. And I don't mean Coke classic, but I'm pumped. Steve, back home in Indiana, the cannon blast. That can only mean one thing. We're talking Indianapolis 500. Jim Cornelison singing back home again in Indiana. Jim Neighbors did it for as long as I can remember, I think. Don't quote me on this. I think it was 1972 to 2014, Jim Neighbors sang it. He was a favorite son of Indiana. And now it's Jim Cornelison, who's also the anthem singer at Chicago Blackhawks home games at United Center. And the Cannon Blast is unique because it goes every day at 6 a.m. And they started that tradition, Paul, I believe, because the facility is so big. I mean, it's part of a golf course in the infield. The facility is so big that it was the only way they could let everybody know, hey, it's time to open the gates. We're just going to bang off a can and that'll be hard not to hear. Right. And, and the military was involved back then, too, because I'm not sure if they are today, but the uh, Army National Guard took care of that each day at, at the brickyard. So, yeah, I mean, Indianapolis 500 steeped in tradition, steeped in pomp and circumstance and ceremony. Always a favorite event on the sporting calendar for me every year, Steve. How long have you been watching the Indy 500? Ever since I was a little boy, really. I mean, I can remember gathered around the TV, you know, cheering for Mario Andretti, A.J. Foyt, Bobby Unser. You know, all those guys, Rick Mears. Um, yeah, it was uh, appointment viewing every year. And, and really, you know, the first event that got me into motorsport. Still still love auto sports to this day. 
I haven't thought of this in forever. I remember Bobby Unser winning a 500 and me having his car. It was probably a Hot Wheel. And then I would mm-hmm. just go out. I would go out and race it mm-hmm. for a while. And I would be Bobby Unser. Oh, my God. I haven't thought about that in forever. And ABC, I think, televised it for a million years. Jim McKay was the host. Right. And the thing that I loved as a viewer, not in TV yet at all, same as you, it was always this spectacle, this huge spectacle, almost Olympic size proportions. And Mm -hmm. spectacle is a word that's way overused in TV now. But then it truly was that, right? It was and still is to this day, the Super Bowl of autosport, right? I mean, everything that goes into it. And it's not just a, a single day thing. It's all week, you know? So yeah, no, it's awesome. And Steve, almost a month ago, 135,000 fans attended the Indianapolis 500. And even at 40% capacity, it was the largest post-pandemic sporting event. Official reviews and feedback across social media raved about NBC Sports broadcast coverage, and the the numbers supported it. NBC had their best ratings of the past five years, and that was going against some primetime shows like NBA quarterfinals as well, too. Their to- total audience delivery for that race day was 5.6 million viewers, Steve, and that was up 51% over last year's broadcast. Now, Paul, here's a question for you. Who would have produced that spectacular show for NBC? Do we have any idea? <laughs> well, Steve, as always, <laughs> your questions are on the money, partner. Renee Hadalid, uh, the lead producer for NBC Sports IndyCar series, uh, was at the helm that day. Made history, Steve. Uh, as she became the first female lead producer in the 105-year history of the Indianapolis 500. And we are extremely fortunate to have Renee with us today. So, Renee, you were a biochemistry major at the University of Arizona and now in the producer's chair at the Indy 500. I've got to be honest with you, I can't lie, that does not seem like a direct arrow. It is not. It's true. Um So I went to high school uh, in Arizona and actually we had an AV team there as well. And I did a bunch of TV there, loved it, thought it was great. And when I went down to U of A, um, I'd actually gotten a bunch of credits in high school that were dual credits. So when I started at U of A, I actually um, enrolled as a junior and you had to declare major and biochem seemed the route I wanted to go. Um, A lot of my family's in medicine um, and it seemed like a great place for me. Uh, when I went down, I still had the love for TV that I'd had in uh, high school. So I started at the PBS station down there working as I was going through college. And my love for it just grew. It's the excitement of the live events. Um, even with that, we were doing some taped items. And I just love the editing process, the whole thing behind it. it, the creativity that goes into it and the thought that you can put into putting entertainment out there for people and being able to see people enjoy it and watch it and Sometimes in in tough times, I mean, COVID, goodness gracious, provided that for a ton of us. And the escape that television provides people and bringing that joy to people, I I couldn't pass it up. So it was a little bit of a wayward path, but I think my heart was in it from the get-go and just took a little bit to get there. So as I worked at the PBS station, I realized the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism was just up the way at Arizona State. It uh, seemed like a natural fit. So went up there uh, and finished out at Arizona State in uh, broadcast journalism. Renee, starting out in this business, um, everyone has a mentor, uh, someone who kind of takes you under their wings, you know, sort of helps you crack the code uh, when you're starting out. Um, who was that person for you? So I have two big ones. Um, at Arizona State, it was Jim Dove. 
he was our professor in college. Uh, he was at the time the lead EVS operator for Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, he offered us a position as utilities when they came to Bank One Ballpark to pull cable. Um, ASU is a big in front of the camera school. And so there were about three of us and a handful of others, myself, my two best friends, April Alford and uh, Justin Banta. They're both still in TV. They showed up with me and from there on, it was a great year for the Giants and the Angels in baseball. And so Sunday night was on the West Coast a lot. And um, the baseball crew said, if you guys can manage to get to the games, we'll hire you, but you'll need to pay for your travel and your room and board. And we were more than happy to do that. Um, after leaving the biochem, my parents obviously questioned my sanity that I was now paying to go to work. Um, but it really worked out in the end. My dad uh, definitely questioned me a few times along the way, but it worked out. <laughs> so we traveled all along with Jim Dove. Um, through that, it was, again, just kind of the way the TV falls out. Um, we'd met a tech manager that was coming up, and he had just received a package for uh, football in the WAC. Um, and he said, all right, you're still going to have to get your travel, but I've managed to get you guys a hotel room. So, all right, we're, on, we're moving in the right direction. <laughs> so we had hotel rooms, and we were doing football on the WAC. WAC short for Western Athletic Conference, an NCAA Division I conference. It was formed in the early 1960s and currently has nine member clubs, including the Seattle University Redhawks and Grand Canyon University Antelopes. Lopes up! And with that, uh, Steve Levy was the play-by-play guy. And Steve at the time um, was obviously doing, he was also doing play-by-play. ESPN still had the hockey contract there. Um, and one day I was still a utility running cable and the stage manager couldn't make it. And they said, Renee, you're going to be the stage manager. And I really wasn't sure what that meant. Um, but I said, sure, because as I always tell everybody, my biggest, uh, advice in television is never say no and just ask the right resources and see what, what Intel you can get and do your best and take every opportunity that comes your way. So I stage managed for Levy and it went fairly well. So he said, Hey, I have this hockey gig. If you'd like to come along with me. And uh, he introduced me to my other mentor who was Bruce Connell and Bruce Connell and Jim Dove have been, they were everything in my career. Um, Bruce sadly has passed away, but he then got us on the UFC tour. Um, we did a bunch of UFC. I stage managed for UFC for a while very different. Um, my grandmother always questioned the UFC. It's a very interesting sport. I still love it to this day, um, but obviously very different. Um, and Bruce said, when we finally kind of came, we all were graduating from Arizona State now. We finished up all our schooling, and he asked the three of us what we wanted to do. Um, April was, wanted to stay in Arizona, so she decided to stay freelance um, with UFC, and she still is with them. Uh, Justin wanted to move more towards camera. So Bruce kind of helped him get a job uh, running camera for a couple of college football games. And um, I decided that I wasn't sure if freelance was the way for me to go because that was right about when ESPN lost the NHL contract. And I was kind of seeing the life of freelancers and how they were moving and shaking, trying to find new positions. Um, so I decided I'd prefer to say staff and Bruce helped me, um, get inroads with SportsCenter. And so then I worked for a year as a PA on SportsCenter. Moved out to Connecticut, uh, lived in his basement with he and his family, drove the kids to hockey, all that jazz, um, and got the ins and outs on SportsCenter. 
knowing that the ultimate goal was I'd love traveling. I'd love everything we'd done in my college career leading up to that, all the cities we'd gone to, all the different places you get to see and people you'd meet. Um, so knowing that the ultimate goal was to move over to their remote production side and ultimately moved over there to remote production at ESPN, which then ultimately led me to NBC when they got the NASCAR contract. So we talked to lots of people on this podcast. Your face literally lights up every single time you talk about live sports TV, which I absolutely love. So you get into NASCAR and then how do you end up sitting in the big chair at the Indy 500? What's that line? It was crazy. So um, NASCAR, again, was it, it's interesting because obviously everybody knows it's stick and ball sports that everybody's heart's drawn to. But I saw this lovely property coming up at ESPN, NASCAR. Um, not a lot of people were jumping at it. Everybody always loves the NFL and the baseball and all those things. And I thought it sounded like a great opportunity. So I literally started at the very bottom of the food chain on NASCAR. I was in their graphics department, moved up to tape, went pit producing, and then produced a couple of races at ESPN as well. Um, and when they lost the contract, uh, I, I obviously still had a position at ESPN, but NASCAR and racing and the whole racing community had totally sucked me in. So I reached out to NBC and they had a position for me as a pit producer there. So I switched over to NBC uh, pit producing there. And then when they got the Indy 500 contract, um, I was pit producing for the 500. Pit produced that for a couple of years. And then um, after pit producing it, uh, the opportunity arose for me to take over the series. So I currently am the lead producer on the IndyCar series. And with that comes the 500, which was an amazing experience. I'm not sure ever in my life I thought that I'd be granted such an opportunity, which it is an opportunity. It is, it's every, it, I, I really don't have words for what it was. I, I'd gone as a fan a couple of times when I didn't have to work it and the scene and just being there, you can't explain it. You, you just can't explain it. The year before with COVID when I'd gone as a pit producer was so, I want to say, I don't want to say eerie because it was still a celebration, but it was the quietness and just driving in. And I was like, goodness gracious. And so this year to have the fans back and to bring it to everybody. Um, and then obviously it was live in Indy as well. So everyone in Indianapolis was able to watch it live on TV as we were airing it, which usually it's uh, blacked out there. So that was great too, since they had limited fans that they were letting in to be able to know that we were bringing the sport live to the state of Indiana, which loves the sport, obviously. And then to all the fans across the U S and the world, quite frankly, was an awesome thing. <laughs> Can you just touch quickly on what pit producing is? Cause you talked about it a lot. I just want to make sure everybody listening knows what it is. Sure. Uh, it's a very unique role. Um, you work hand in hand with the producer of the race. So the producer is obviously the ultimate stopgap in everything. They make all the final decisions for what goes on the broadcast. But there's obviously the people in the booth. And then with pit producing, there can be up to four, five, six people down on pit road based on kind of the event and what it is. And obviously that's a lot of voices to juggle and kind of things to traffic throughout the show. So you're in charge of the four uh pit reporters that are down on pit road. So they each get a section of pit road with, depending on the race, 10, 12, 15 drivers that they focus on uh, during the race. And you basically are funneling and then giving them some ideas to tell the producer. So for instance, say 
Marty Snyder hears that somebody's got a wheel going down. I'll let the producer know, hey, so-and-so has a wheel going down. We'll get to it. And then it makes for great TV when, hey, next thing you know, they're coming into pit and they're changing that loose wheel. And the story really comes together before the fans at home even know what's about to happen. So you're basically the, the funnel is the best way to put it, to get the information from pit road up to the producer. And then we also have, um, for instance, at NBC, we bring in, uh, obviously we have some entertainment and other individuals. So we have Rutledge Wood as well. So he kind of does the, the fan experience and then different sights and sounds that are around the track. Just so if you can't make it to the race, you feel like you're there through kind of the updates that Rutledge provides us. Preparation for a show. Let's take Indy, for example. When does it start for you? How is it? How intensive is it? Um, and what's sort of like the last weeks ramping up to the show like? Goodness gracious. Uh, a show like the 500 is uh, like any show of that scope. And it is almost from the year that it ends, you basically start working on it again. Um, I wasn't, wasn't sure exactly that I'd be producing the 500 right away, obviously, after it ended the year before. Um, so as soon as I found out, I knew that I'd have some role probably pit producing again. Um, but you really start working on it from the production team to, as you said, the technical team to everybody starts planning and game planning. An event of that size and scope takes months and months of preparation. So I would say, obviously, the meetings go from once a month to once a week to twice a week to daily um, as it gets closer and closer. But you really put your heart and soul into it. And it's a little bit as it starts out, obviously, big picture. You don't know who's actually going to be in the race. So you're just making sure that you have all the pieces and parts to make it be the spectacle that it is, making sure that you have all the ceremonies in line and everything along those lines. And then as it gets closer, you'll get the entry list. So then you research the drivers and the storylines there and making them real people and making people understand this is a dangerous sport. These drivers are out there putting their lives on the line and they love it. And I want to make the fans love it as much as I do, as much as they do. And as much as every single person on my team does, I've never worked on a team with as much passion as I do in the motorsports family, be it NASCAR or IndyCar. They are diehard lovers of the sport. I, every single person puts their heart and soul into it. So not only am I doing a ton of prep, but every single person on it, be it a technician, be it a production person, everyone puts their heart and soul into it. And we are all so proud of not just the 500, but it's the whole month of May. We got there on May 7th and we stayed the whole entire month, um, did all the practices goodness gracious. And then um, we have NBC lucky enough to have Peacock now. So we were able to live stream all six hours of practices when they were on air without any commercials and bring all the content to people. And again, like I said, the most important part is tell those stories and make people care about the drivers. So that when you get to the 500, somebody that hasn't followed the sport a ton has a rooting interest in someone, be it Elio, whoever it is, be it Scott Dixon, give them a reason to care and give them a reason to want to cheer them on till the very, very last lap. And they take that checkered flag. You talked about Peacock. How beneficial do you think it is to you as a producer that you can actually produce content in the days leading up to it rather than just doing the race? That's beneficial, right? 100%. I love it. And I think it, it too, it's like I said, it tells the whole storyline of the weekend, be it if someone say, has an incident during a practice or a qualifying or whatever it is, you're able to truly 
document and tell America the story with the pictures and the words. And it's not just a video flashback or something along those lines. We're bringing it live to them and you're able to see it as it's happening. And then again, we revisit it if there's another practice or if it happens in practice and qualifying's after, we can bring it back in the qualifying so that then by the time it builds, obviously, throughout the weekend, um, the viewership and just fans watching. So by the time you get to the race, everybody has a great feeling and a good uh, jumping off point for the storylines of the weekend. And it definitely, it helps a ton. It really makes you feel like you're in there and you get a good sense too of kind of the driver's mindsets because we're lucky enough in uh, the racing world to be able to have access to their radios, which is, it would be like if you could hear every single play that a quarterback's uh, drawing up on the field. You can literally hear them talking to their crew chief, talking to their strategists, talking to their teams, what they need changed in the car, what they don't. And you can see how a car changes over the span of a weekend from, say, they came in thinking they weren't so hot to all of a sudden they're looking for a win on Sunday morning. Renee, talk about broadcast philosophy for a show like the 500. It's a show that you're producing for A, the diehard race fan, and then B, maybe somebody who's watching motorsport for the first time. As the lead producer, um, how, do you, how do you walk that tightrope? You're correct. It is a tightrope because you don't want you, you to dumb it down for the, like you said, the diehard fans. You want to make sure you're giving it to them. So I think the key, um, and that I think that our talent does a great job of, is explaining it in real life terms. Um, the other day, Townsend Bell used a great example. It was smoking hot when we were in Detroit. And he said, it's like riding around sitting on a cooking skillet. And I was like, that's, it's perfect. Because even the diehard fan can appreciate that's hot. <laughs> so it's just, it's relating it to things that people can see. Um, I love it when they say, when you're in the car, it's like driving next to a semi-trailer. When you feel it kind of bump up next to it, you can feel that draft. And I think it's just making it relatable to everybody and saying it in that terms. I, I don't think it offends the diehard fan. I think it makes them feel even more a part of the broadcast because then as they're driving along, they're like, that's exactly what Townsend was talking about the other day. That's what Lee Diffie mentioned the other day when he was comparing it to this Um one that they had about the bumps somewhere was uh, writing a sheet of cardboard down the stairs at your house is what it feels like as you were going over the bumps. And it's those making it personable to everybody, I think draws in everyone. And I think that's the key telling the stories of the humans, everybody, even the diehard fan wants to know about the ins and outs of someone's personal life. It, it makes them human. It makes them their superheroes on the track, but we want to know about their, who they are as well when they're off the track. And so I think that that's the most important part is weaving those stories in and out throughout the weekend and um, bringing the drivers into their living rooms. So if my podcast partner has done his homework correctly, 103 cameras, drone coverage, 15 onboard cameras, seven super slow-mos. We talked about purists a little bit. How do you use all those gizmos and gadgets and appeal to the purists? There's got to be a balance, right? Definitely. Um, I think... The best part is the cameras that I love the most that apply to the purist and the random fan are those onboard cameras that you mentioned. I'm not sure there's anybody that can turn on a broadcast. And when we put in the telemetry and on the side coming from SMT with the scoring and has that 220 miles per hour over there, that catches anybody's eye. And then as well, when you see those hands and just like as they're moving the steering wheel and just motoring it around, it's the appeal of the physicality of it. Those onboard cameras are amazing. It's like nothing in any other sport. I, I, I'd take, I'd take 
all of them, every single car should have one. So that's, uh, I think that that brings it in. And then the drone, there's always, uh, there's opportunities for it. I, I leave a lot of that up uh, to our director, Sean Owens, does a great job with it. Um, and obviously there's sales elements and items that you have to work into break. And I thought the drone played perfectly into that. The beautiful shots coming up over the golf course or through the trees, um, being able to put in a billboard bed over that or other of our sales items, our promos or whatever you do. Um, it's just finding the right moment to utilize all of it. And then also at times when the racing's good, the racing's good. And that's what everybody's tuning in for to see. I mean, those final laps of the Indy 500 had my heart racing and I hope everybody else's that was watching because you didn't need any toys then. It was right there, right in front of you. So it's nice to have them and I love using them when the moment's appropriate. But then when it comes down to good racing, good racing and the battle that Elio had at the end of that race, speechless that's all there is for it <laughs> renee the indy 500 is 500 miles for those of uh, listeners that might not be a race fan um 200 laps which in a in in timing wise could be probably anywhere between two hours and 45 minutes to i think the longest race was about three and a half hours with stoppages and restarts uh how on earth do you keep focus where it needs to be uh, for that long without being able to even really take a breath. Do, is there ever a chance at all in the race where you can even just zone out for two seconds just to like reset your, your mind? I always take my time for that is right before the race starts. Um, everybody will see me. I'll kind of be off in a corner somewhere sitting on a golf cart, not really talking to anybody. Um, I'll give a wave and a smile every now and again. But I really settle in. Um, and once the race starts, you're right. There really isn't a break. It's And there's battles everywhere. So you can't just be watching the front and the leaders. There's a battle in the back. There's pit stops coming. It is a lot to, it's a lot to juggle. And that also applies along the lines of the pit producer. It helps a little bit to be able to stay laser focused on the big picture of the race. As funny as that sounds, laser focused on the big picture. But be able to take that into account and know that you have an amazing team around you, that you have a pit producer that's going to give you the best stories from pit road. They know the timings. They know when it's appropriate to sell something there. You've got a great group in graphics that's going to pop in amazing graphics when that moment comes up. It's just trusting the team around you. Our tape producer, Taylor Rollins, is fantastic. I mean, his historical knowledge is second to none. And the items that they come up with from that tape room are Fantastic. And then the EVS operators and then the replay producer himself, Jared Sumner, all of them, everyone promises when we start that day to stay laser focused all day. Once those cars hit the track, it is an intense, as you said, 245 or 330 or however long it's going to go. It's intense, but we are all up on it the whole entire time. And I take a break. I, I take a breath before it starts. And as soon as it's done <laughs> and hope to remember to breathe in the middle. I think the most impactful part of the race for me was when Ray Hall's tire came off. Yes. Just talk a little bit about how you decided how many times to replay that and how you decided how big a key moment that was. Sure. So I think that that's, it is, it's, you saw the racing on the track, but that's the other, you raise a brilliant point. There's always, with celebration comes much heartbreak. The amount of work that those teams put into there and to know that it comes down to a tire coming off and 
the replays. Goodness gracious, Connor Daly is the t- tires bouncing right in front of him, and watching Graham on his knees on the track, watching the 500 literally slip away from him. It's you have to encompass every story, and as heartbreaking and as crushing as it is to see those as well, it's the whole book. You gotta you gotta read the whole book, and you need to see those parts as well. As like I said, as crushing and soul breaking as it is to see that out there. And it's just, it's finding the fine balance and then making sure that you then that leads to pit stops or it leads to change in strategy or it changes to this. So everything has a trickle down. It's not the moment is the moment in and of itself. And you show it as it happens then you bring it back in a race recap and you bring it back later in the race, just to kind of remind everybody the story that we've been telling all day. It's a full encompass story. It doesn't, mm start at the green flag and then, Oh, all the way, we'll get to the checkers. There's all the drivers out there. They all have their stories and they all have their incidents on pit road, or they have their incidents on the track. They have people that they're mad at on the radios. They have people they're happy at on the radios. And it's just kind of making sure that you balance all the stories out there. Yeah. That Graham was the video of him on the track was I've felt gutted for him. Describe your mental, emotional, physical state if you're making your way to the rental car drop-off in the airport or if it's just back to your hotel um, to, you know, just take a deep breath and say, what what just happened? Uh, just tell our listeners what it's like to come down from a show uh, with the magnitude of, of Indy 500. Were you there with, with me, Paul? Were you there in Indy? Because <laughs> you're, you're pretty much spot on. Um, so I, I'm not this will be the irony of it all. I actually hate driving. (laughs) I really don't like it. So I always have somebody with me driving. They laugh and make fun of me all the time. So I will sit in the car. They'll always ask if I'm okay. And I'll be like, yes, I'm fine. And it doesn't matter what race it is. The 500 this week in road America, wherever we are, this is exactly how it goes down. I'll sit in the car Hopefully it's not a long drive because I won't speak and it always gets to an awkward part where they'll turn the radio up a little bit more. And I go back through every single thing that happened in the race. It's weird how much you can replay in your mind so quickly afterwards. Um, And then they had a very lovely, uh, we had a little party afterwards to celebrate the end of the 500 and all that. And uh, I kind of sat um, in the chair for a bit all by myself yet once again, (laughs) going through it all. And I'd say it takes me, regardless of the race, I'd say it takes me about an hour until I can uh, return to the normal world, just kind of playing it all back in my head. Um, And then we, so we did stay overnight. And then the next day we went home and I usually watch the race right back and I uh, make notes for everybody kind of about how it went. And I promised myself this for this race, I was not going to do that. Um, I did make notes eventually, don't worry. Um, but I just watched it back to watch it back as a fan, to just watch it back and make sure that we encompassed everything that we needed to see there. Fans back, Elio climbing the fence, goodness gracious, with all the fans. I didn't think he was ever going to stop celebrating. I knew my flight was the next day and I thought I might miss it because he'd still be celebrating. It was just watching it back on TV again. And I felt very good when we left the track. And when I watched it back again, I, I felt we'd done our due diligence. I felt we'd told the stories of the humans. I also felt we did a darn good job showing the racing on the track. And then having fans back at the track and 
showing Elio in that moment, it was, I mean, it was a story tale. The moment with him and Mario Andretti when they were on pit road, unbelievable. Watching all the drivers come up to him, just taking in that whole scene as amazing as the race was and as great as the racing was, the whole post-race was equally, each part just kept building and building and building and building. And it felt like the whole day played out exactly how it should have. Every part just kept getting better and better and better. And I was glad that I watched it back without taking notes and just took the whole moment in. So you take some time for yourself before it starts to focus. So you sit down and they're waving the green flag and you can see this is going to start the race. What were your emotions at that moment this year being in that chair for the first time? I got goosebumps. I had a moment of this is the Indy 500 and I am producing it. And then I said, let's get down to business and have an awesome race. And it, I didn't realize that I was, would be as emotional as I actually was. I was definitely a little bit before and it, it more hit me afterwards. Um, to be quite honest, like in the moment I kept trying to tell myself it's the 500, it's the 500, it's a race. Let's get to all the action. And it was, it was afterwards that the emotion really hit me to be quite honest. Um, when it was happening, it's just the adrenaline of being in the truck and the live TV. You're just, you're in the moment. And once I started getting calls and texts from people afterwards, kind of realizing what a big moment it was, you're actually making me get a little emotional now. <laughs> um, it, it hit me that it, it was huge. <laughs> it was huge. And can you tell the story for our listeners about your, your grandma and a special birthday with a number that may have coincided with the race? Correct. So, oh, now you'll really get me. Dang, back to back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my grandmother's uh, birthday always coincides with Memorial Day weekend. And it was always a huge family gathering in our family. She uh, made it to her 100th birthday, which was fantastic. Um, it was always what she said she was going to make it to 100. And she sure goodness did. Um, and my aunt wrote me to remind me that the 105th running of the Indianapolis 500 would have been my grandmother's 105th birthday. So I was glad she didn't tell me that before because <laughs> that would have been even more emotional, <laughs> but it was, it was fantastic. And my aunt kept saying how proud my grandma would have been of me and how important it would have been to her. Cause she was, uh, my grandma was a big champion for, uh, stubborn women, as it were, making sure you got your voice heard. Renee, thank you so much for sharing that heartwarming personal story. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and sharing your history-making story. But before we let you go, uh, each episode we do a Q&A segment presented by Conquest Hockey, uncompromising premium hockey athletic wear, work, win, repeat. Renee, our question uh, to you comes from Todd Lewis via Twitter. At Todd Lewis Sports. Hi, Renee. I'm going to break my question into two parts because Paul made me. For the Indianapolis 500, you have your regular crew of on air people and also bring in several special guest announcers. How do you incorporate them into the show so that each has a defined role? It's a great question, Todd. Um, we do bring in special guests. Obviously, we had, uh, we had Jimmy Johnson, we had Steve Latart, we had Mike Tarico, we had Danica. 
there's a lot, there's a lot to juggle there. And I think the best part is um, just kind of playing off their strengths is the most important part to realize. Um, Mike and Danica do a great job of weaving the stories and just making it feel like the big, big, big event that it is. And having him do top of the hour, bottom of the hour resets, just so that the fans can kind of hear that strong voice, having the booth boys with their segment, doing their normal roles, diff in the gang, calling the amazing action on the track. And then the nice part about Jimmy this year is, while he is a NASCAR driver, he's in that 48 car and watching kind of the excitement in his eyes as he saw them riding around at the brickyard uh, at watching Tony go around. And then one of the highlights of, of my day, I thought, was when we were able to get him to talk on the radio to Tony before the race started. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and so just kind of playing off of each of their strengths. Uh, Latarte, as a crew chief, does a great job being inquisitive and asking questions as they pertain. He relates it to the NASCAR audience and then questions it to the boys in the booth as to how it relates or what the differences are in IndyCar. So playing to everyone's strengths, I think, is the best part. And then Rutledge, um, having him down there was great, again, because with the fans back, being down there in the Pagoda Plaza, being able to welcome the fans and just seeing him have people around him, it, it was fantastic. So the best thing you can do is play off the strengths of all of the announcers and the group that you have and know what, what they're going to talk about the most and what the fans are going to want to hear from them. So... Um, like we said, uh, Jimmy running out his 48 car and being able to hear from him down on the Peacock pit box was fantastic. Part two, this year was even more challenging in that it's the first post-pandemic event to allow such a large crowd, and you had Elio Castroneves become the fourth driver ever to win this iconic race for the fourth time. Understandably, all hell breaks loose. How do you react and cover that celebration that breaks just about every protocol that's been planned. So with Elio's celebration, it was great seeing them all down there. Um, obviously trying to stay as much as we can within all COVID protocols is the most important thing we can do um, and doing it as best we can. I know that uh, IndyCar prides themselves on how much of the paddock is uh, vaccinated. Um, so obviously the driver interaction isn't that much of a deal. And most people, well, all the people that were down there on pit road, Obviously, there weren't fans out there actually down in the pits. Um, so that helps quite a bit, uh, sticking with the protocol. And then covering the celebration itself, it's pretty easy to do. You just let it happen. You just let the moment happen. The biggest thing is getting out of the way and not becoming part of the story. Letting the Nats audios pump, letting all of that sound come from the fans, from Elio, from other drivers coming up to him and just letting the moment play out in front of you. You don't need to create the story when it's that big of a moment. It, the moment is what it is. And the pictures tell the story and the audio tells the story and you just let it happen and be a very, very glad fan of making sure that you're not missing anything. Cause that's the other thing. There's so much going on then. There's so many people celebrating. There's owners celebrating. There's crew celebrating. There's family celebrating. And just making sure that you are in the moment 100%. I have an unsanctioned follow-up question, Paul. I'm sorry. I don't remember any celebration after any event that stayed on a person longer than you stayed. Yeah, you're smiling because you know what I'm going to say. 
on as long as you stayed on Helio, he never left the frame. Was that a difficult decision? Did you have to sell that? Did you say, let's just keep, let's ride this horse until it drops? What, what were you doing in the truck? So it, it was, it was like, it's kind of like I said about the whole race in and of itself. Elio's celebration in and of itself was another event. It just kept, I was like, all right, well, we'll go to, no, now he's running all the way to turn four. All right, we'll go to, no, no, we're just going to stay there. You couldn't, as a fan, I couldn't, like there was, there was nothing you could do. And if you did not enjoy that moment and enjoy all the joy that he had and just celebrating it, being in there with it, it was the easiest decision I've ever had to make in my entire life. There was nothing else to do. There was nothing you could do than watch the pure and utter joy. He looked like a five-year-old kid running around down there. It was awesome. It, it, it was the easiest decision ever because every time you th thought that it had ended, it started again. It was fantastic. Todd Lewis, thank you so much for your outstanding question. And Steve, thank you so much for your outstanding follow-up going rogue like you normally do. Uh, that is our Q&A segment presented by Conquest Hockey. For all your premium hockey athletic needs, check them out at conquesthockey.co and use the promo code INSIDE15 for 15% off your next order. Renee, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to meet you. Uh, I think Steve and I probably could have gone another 60 minutes with you, but we know that's not, a, not allowed. Thank you so much for being a part of our show. You're an absolute uh, pleasure to speak with. No, thank you guys. It was a joy talking to you guys about it. I kind of feel like I relived the 500 all over. I, I, I got a little more pep in my step as we go out here to do this practice at Road America now. Thank you, guys. That's our job. Put pep in your step. Thanks, guys. Man, I cannot tell you how many things about that interview with Renee. I loved Paul when she's talking about Jimmy Johnson talking to Tony Kanaan on the radio and her hands are going. We're on the Zoom call. Like she like her hands are on yeah. the wheel. Yeah. I love that so much because it shows how passionate she is about it. Oh. And she talked about replaying the event in her head, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you do. I know I do. Like there's no way to not do it. But when she said that she goes off to the side before the show and she's sitting on a golf car and she might wave to you, but really she's just focusing. I thought, oh my God, I thought I was the only person who just went off into some quiet room for like 10 minutes. So nobody could find me. And I just, I always called it just centering myself. Mm -hmm. Do you do the same thing? Like, can you do it? Or are you working right up until Kane's showtime? Well, I doesn't. It's not doable in canes uh, because we we do the we do basically pre production almost right up to we do pre production into rehearsal into on on air for pregame, so it's not doable for me on canes. But uh, when I did national shows at TSN and Sportsnet, I always did that. I would always get away. I just uh, you know favor for me. It was just a quick walk of the venue. Uh, you know, like on the inside of the bowl, whether it be a football stadium or a hockey arena, I would have my favorite music on with my earbuds and it would just be 10, 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but it would, it would allow me to just wipe the, wipe the slate clean and then get, get ready to go. When we did games at Northlands Coliseum, the truck parked underneath by the dressing rooms, but no spectators were allowed in most of that underneath bowl. Mm -hmm. And I would do the same thing. I would just turn and walk and it would get real quiet. And you would yeah. just take time to just center yourself in your head. What do I want to think about? Yeah. What don't I want to think about? What are the key mm -hmm. things I want to remember for this show? Right. 
And yeah, it's like, you just kind of lock it down. And I never needed long. I don't know about you. I probably needed less than 10 minutes, but it was just such a great way to center yourself and Mm -hmm. be ready before, you know, all hell broke loose really. Right. It's a, it's a crazy day, game show day, game day on on any show that you're working on, whether it's the Indy 500 or a regular season hockey game. Yeah. They're crazy days. They're crazy long days and you just need time to just clear your head before play begins and and get your mind where it needs to be and get your focus points where they need to be every game you're able to raise the bar maybe it would be nice if we'd had a nice foamy bathtub we could slide into for like 20 minutes before it doesn't seem like it would have been a possibility but i never thought to ask at the time yeah maybe you know maybe make that a milk bath steve with some roast petals or something too probably see now it was fine right up until that and then it just (laughs) you made it weird All right, well, that'll do it for episode 29. Remember, if you haven't already done so, that was the time to pull the plug on this. Uh, Hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform. Don't forget to follow Inside the Truck on Twitter, Inside the Truck Podcast on Instagram. Keep up to date with what's going on with the show and subscribe to our Inside the Truck channel on YouTube as well for all kinds of bonus content. If you liked our interview with Renee and the talk about the Indy 500, And you know somebody who might enjoy the show. Say, hey, listen to E29 or any of the other 28 episodes if you know somebody who might enjoy it. I'm Steve Lansky. He's Paul Hemming. That's it for today. You keep listening in, wow, it's got to be Indianapolis, Indiana, right, Paul? Absolutely, partner. You keep listening in Indy, and we'll keep bringing you Inside the Truck.